I was walking along, minding my business, when out of an orange-colored sky, flash, bang, alakazam, wonderful you came by. I was humming a tune, drinking in sunshine, when out of that orange-colored view, flash, bang, alakazam, I gotta look at you. One look and I yell, Timber, watch out for flying glass. Cause the ceiling fell in, the bottom fell out, I went into a spin, I started to shout, I've been hit. This is it, this is it, I it. I was walking along, minding my business, when love came and hit me in the eye. Flash, bam, alakazam, out of an orange colored sky. One look and I yell, Timber, watch out for flying glass. Cause the ceiling fell in, the bottom fell out, I went into a spin, I started to shout, I've been hit. This is it, this is it, I-T, hit! I was walking along, minding my business, when love came and hit me in the eye. Flash, bam, alakazam, out of an orange-colored purple stripe. Pretty green polka dot sky Flash, a bam Alakazam and goodbye Wow, I thought love was much softer than that What a most disturbing sound I was walking along, minding my business, when out of an orange-colored sky, flash, bang, alakazam, wonderful you came by, I was humming a tune, drinking in sunshine, when out of that orange-colored view, flash, bang, alakazam, I gotta look at you. One look and I yell, Timber, watch out for flying glass. Cause the ceiling fell in, the bottom fell out, I went into a spin, I started to shout, I've been hit. This is it, this is it, I-T, hit! I was walking along, minding my business, when love came and hit me in the eye. Flash, bam, alakazam, out of an orange-colored sky.
looking I yell timber Watch out for flying glass Cause the ceiling fell in and the bottom fell out I went into a spin and I started to shout I've been hit This is it, this is it, I-T-H it. I was walking along Minding my business When love came and hit me in the eye Flash, bam, alakazam Out of an orange colored purple stripe A pretty green polka dot sky Flash, bam, alakazam and goodbye Wow, I thought love was much softer than that What a most disturbing sound Hi, welcome to episode two of Penelope's History. I am your host, Leslie, and I hope that you will enjoy our discussion today. It's about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, I also have a blog which you might enjoy. It's uh, www.penelopeloom.blogspot.com. Now, on this episode, I have some fascinating pictures. And uh, atomic bomb culture was everywhere during the 1950s and early 1960s. And uh, it even influenced the fashion of women. In the 1950s, they wore bras that were pointed like the tip of a missile. No, I'm not kidding. And then people also made a habit of watching, wait for it, testing of atomic bombs. And I've got pictures of people sitting and watching the so-called mushroom cloud uh, in the distance. Radiation, anybody? Anybody? Bueller? So uh, there were also movies entitled, oh my God, Dig That Uranium. In the words of the immortal Keanu Reeves, whoa. All right, now we're down to toys. And one of the toys was called a giant atomic bomb. Wait for it. A safe, harmless, cap-shooting giant atomic bomb. The next one is a game called Uranium Rush. An exciting new electric game for the family. There is also a radioactive screen with bottles of uranium. And finally, there's a little briefcase with the name Atomic Energy Lab. So I I, I think that's enough to at least uh, verbally visualize the 1950s and early 1960s who were influenced so profoundly by the new atomic age. Now, these products and images were intentionally meant to sort of lull the public 
as to the actual danger of the atomic bomb. And then, oh my God, the hydrogen bomb. Holy moly, Batman. Talk about a real-life horror movie. By 1960s, atomic weapons were meant to demonstrate American might versus the Soviet. Our atomic tests need to be more fearsome and powerful than the comrades of the East. I mean, how many Pacific islands can we blow into smithereens? And who gives a shit about the Bikini Islands? I mean, oh my God. Certainly not Russia or the United States. Now, this competition, this arms race, had a slogan, if you will, attached to it. M-A-D. Mutually Assured Destruction. I know, it's insane, but that's, that was the reality in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, we could discuss in politics, for example, some of the NATO plans of the Eisenhower administration, which ultimately culminated in a CIA plan to invade Cuba. We could also talk about the interesting decision of the U.S. and its NATO allies to put Jupiter atomic missile installations in both Turkey and Italy, thus uh, threatening the Soviet Union. So the best way to wrap your head around this period in world history is probably just to shake your heads and thank the gods that you either survived it or weren't born yet. Now, the crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis itself, involved a series of steps and missteps that seem incredibly stupid, and yet also stupidly lucky when viewed via hindsight. So, what were these actions? What were these steps? So, let's boil it down. It was October 1962, and the Soviet Union, Russia, and the U.S. nearly came to blows over the presence of ICBMs. And uh, these were uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And in Cuba, that made them 90 miles off our shore. Now, estimates of danger and destruction that could be potentially... Um, felt by these bombs uh, destroyed the majority of the United States. And if you can believe that, it was only Seattle that lay out of the zone of danger. I suppose that the Kennedy and Eisenhower boys conveniently forgot about these missiles in Italy and Turkey that were already pointed at the USSR, as I just said. Turnabout's fair play. Well, you know, that might be the reason why the Soviets placed those missiles, put them under Castro's control on the island of Cuba, sort of a, a counter move in a dangerous game of, of chess. 
So I'd like you to consider a nuclear arsenal of toys which were partially controlled by Fidel Castro, who I think I'm going to characterize him as a little less than balanced. It's like having a guy, Donald Trump, with his finger on the veritable button. So let's return. It's October 1962. A routine American flight over Cuba took some damning images. And although at first they were hard to ascertain, they showed a whole bunch of nuclear bombs being established uh, somewhat off the coast of, of, uh, excuse me, somewhere um, east and west of Havana. And when the United States developed those pictures, Cuba was busted. The photos revealed several SS-4 missiles on the island. Okay, what the hell was an SS-4? Such weapons were classified as thermonuclear devices with a warhead capable of delivering 2.3 megatons. These bombs had the potential to decimate not only North America, but the top of South America. And let us not forget Mesoamerica. So living in Seattle, those people were going to be all right. But everyone else was DAD, dead as a doornail. All right, I can see why Kennedy got a little freaked out with those bombs in Castro. And it wasn't just one little bomb, but dozens upon dozens, all controlled by a nice, balanced madman like Fidel Castro. According to recently released Russian and Cuban records, Khrushchev and the Presidium dispatched, wait for it, 40,000 Russian soldiers, 40,000, to build and maintain the missile silos. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. You can imagine that the CIA and the Defense Department boys were wetting their pants. It was October 15, 1962. Kennedy was a little upset with Khrushchev. Kennedy conveniently forgot NATO's missiles in both Italy and Turkey. That was kind of a strange reaction, in my opinion. We can threaten NATO can threaten Russia with those two missile sites, but Russia cannot do the same thing in Cuba. Now, the scary thing I think that Kennedy was chiefly thinking of was a arsenal of nuclear bombs under the control of a radical like Fidel Castro and, by extension, Che Guevara. So, 
although the president, once he knew about the missiles, the president kept up with his regular schedule. Certain key advisors and their staffers of the National Security Council were called into a secret meeting. Today, that group is and was referred to as XCOM, or the Executive Committee. So what in the hell were they going to do? Talk about a Gordian knot. How are they going to keep this knowledge from both the press and the American people? Not an easy proposition. On Thursday, the 18th, JFK met with Foreign Minister Andriy Gromyko, warning him about the American attitude towards any nuclear weapons in Cuba. So, simply put, none, zero bombs. And remember that this was two days after the existence of bombs on Cuba. Their positions, their presence on the island was fully established. But this is really not good. Gromyko denied the existence of any such Soviet weapons on the island. Oopsie. I guess that poor bastard was left out of the loop on that one. On that same day, some bright light bulbs at the Pentagon decided to conduct a test involving a hydrogen bomb with a 1.5 megaton yield. Ah, okay. So we're in a potential crisis involving thermonuclear weapons, and we're going to do a missile test. I mean, you got to think to yourself, dumb. By Friday, October 18th, President Kennedy attended a meeting with his top advisors regarding possible military options. And if the situation could get any worse, surveillance discovered even more bombs on Cuba. And on this day, there was yet another bomb test. I mean, can you believe this shit? Can you believe this? They're testing bombs with the threat of atomic war looming over our heads. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now we come to Sunday, October 21st. Kennedy and XCOM decide on a naval blockade of Cuba. Now, why this strategy? Except instead of blockade, Kennedy used the word quarantine. Now, the word was important because a blockade technically was an act of war, whereas quarantine wasn't, okay? And so avoidance of war was pretty much what the Kennedy administration was all about. And also, Khrushchev in Russia, he didn't want a war. All right, Uh, Monday, October 22nd, Kennedy went on television to tell us about his super plan. He also set the defense forces 
Edis, Edis, excuse me, I can't talk. He also set the defensive forces at a state of DEFCON 3. So what the hell is DEFCON? Simply, DEFCON or means defensive conditions. The lower you go, the closer you get to thermonuclear war. You're not going to believe what happens next. Russia gets equally stupid points because they tested a hydrogen bomb. In the middle of this, they're testing bomb after bomb after bomb. On Tuesday, October 23rd, the Organization of American States officially supported the American blockade. Oh, sorry, I meant quarantine of Cuba. Additionally, our planes discovered that the Russian toys are ready for action. That means they're ready to be launched and destroy America. Kennedy and his boys discussed possible diplomatic solutions to the existing problem, but it, it was incredibly complex. I, I would not have wanted to try and figure that out. On Wednesday, October 24th, many of the voyaging Russian ships reached America's quarantine line. Now, miraculously, Khrushchev government ordered the vessels to halt, but not to turn around. During a meeting of the executive committee, or EXCOM, Kennedy finally decided against an invasion of Cuba. He thought that such an action would be enough provocation for Castro to launch the missiles. By October 25th, on Thursday, Adlai Stevenson, who was the American ambassador to the United Nations, showed the security committee of said organization blow-up photos of missile installations in Cuba. There they were, pictures and all. And all of this presentation was much or added much to the consternation of the Soviet ambassador who kind of maintains a, a awkward radio silence. American forces are then set at DEFCON 2. Now, now we had never gone that far before. And it was a signal to the Russians that we were getting ready for all-out war. So, gulp. By Friday, Kennedy's committee finally gets a communication from the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. In this letter, he said that his government would remove their missiles if Kennedy would not invade Cuba. There was also a caveat uh, to that plan, uh, which uh, occurred when Bobby went to see uh, the Russian representative in, in Washington. And during that meeting, it was offered by the Kennedy administration to remove the Jupiter missiles in Turkey in exchange for the complete removal of missiles from Cuba. And at this point, when Kennedy decides that he's not going to invade Cuba, Cuba 
the CIA helpfully tells the president that Cuban-Russian forces appear to have sped up their installation of the bombs. So, as I said before, that night, Bobby Kennedy met with Russian Ambassador Dobrynin, where he floated the idea of American uh, removal, as I just said, of its Jupiter missiles in Turkey, if Russia would get rid of the explosive Cuban problems. Such a notion is attractive to Khrushchev and his boys because move and counter move. Now, at the same time, Castro sends Nikita a kind of love gram, telling him that Russia ought to launch its bombs against America in the wake of their invasion of Cuba. Now, you're not going to believe this. Okay, we've got all this going on. The threat of thermonuclear war, the threat of, I don't know what kind of catastrophe. And are you going to buy, are you going to buy the fact that there was another bomb test? Really? The American hydrogen bomb goes boom. I mean, whatever. By Saturday, October 27th, a U-2 veers off course and ends up encroaching on Russian airspace. Another U-2 was shot down while flying over Cuba and the pilot was lost. Unbe-frigging believable. By Sunday, October 28th, the crisis appears to have been averted. How? Well, that's complicated. And yet, Khrushchev said in a radio address that Russian bombs on the island would be dismantled and essentially softened his approach to the problem of U.S. offensive missiles in Turkey. Those missiles were removed by the United States six months after the agreement to end the Cuban Missile Crisis. You're not going to believe this. I have trouble believing this. Astonishment, bewilderment, horror. Russia conducted another bomb test. I, I have nothing to say to that. By Monday, October 29th, Kennedy relaxes the blockade and keeps up the low-altitude surveillance flights. It's effectively over. Of course, there were things to clean up in the aftermath. Of course, both sides claimed a huge foreign policy victory. But when it comes to considering the Cuban Missile Crisis as a whole, it's very difficult to, to grasp it, the incident, in its entirety, because there were so many, so many moments, so many small, irritating conflicts. I go back to the Gordian Knot, it's kind of impossible to figure it out, to unravel that string, but I've done my best. So what can we conclude about this whole debacle? I'm stumped.
When you study the context of this tumultuous period, it's impossible to reach definitive conclusions. However, if you try and boil it down, I'd have to point to one recurrent theme. How stupid was it for both sides to conduct near-daily nuclear bomb tests? WTF. I'm stumped, flummoxed. I just don't understand. In all fairness, I'd have to say that the world was damn lucky. But no one side could honestly claim victory. How did events get to that particular boiling point? Could we say that this was Kennedy's finest hour? Well, he didn't end up in ordering the invasion of Cuba, and Khrushchev did write his letter formally requesting the exchange, removal of missile sites, Cuba and Turkey, respectively. Perhaps his letter greatly reduced tension between the two countries. Roughly, though, summing it up, 13 days of horror, 13 days of idiocy, and 13 days of unnecessary near conflicts. So that's about it. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much and have a great day.